So Mark, in terms of the degree of impact and encouragement that you've experienced in life, where, where would you rank Spurgeon there for you? Boy, top of the list, right? I mean, I think a lot of people say that they like, it was Phil Johnson who said a lot of people like to quote Spurgeon, but they don't like to do a deep dive into his messages and see where, what he's all about. It seems like he is the most quoted person from a vault, right? It seems like everything just kind of dripped from his mouth like honey, unintentional. He had a command of the audience as well. The ability to connect with people and to meet them at their level, I think by and large, demonstrable by his prayer life. Ray, what I want to know is what was going through your mind when you and I were in Israel and you saw me pull out those sheets for the bed from my suitcase and a pillowcase for my pillow in the hotel. I thought, idiot. <laughs> do you still do that? <laughs> no, he doesn't do that. I couldn't believe it. Seriously, we, we arrived in Israel. We'd flown all the way there, and um, we hit the sack late at night, wasn't it? I snuggle up in bed at night, and I hear, whoosh, whoosh, <laughs> and you're changing the sheets because you didn't trust the hotel sheets. <laughs> you know what I used to you do? You brought your own sheets to Israel when you travel. I know. Everywhere. I used to take my own sheets. Really? I would take, you probably even took yeah. your own toothbrush. I would take my own sheets. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I used to use the used one in the hotel. But no, yeah, I used to take my own sheets. I used to take my own pillowcase. But it wasn't just my own pillowcase. It was a an other case that would like, you would put the pillow in and then you would zip it like a plastic cover and then... My pillowcase on top of Why? that. Why? You know how many heads are on those pillows? They wash them. You trust that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I trust yeah. soap. I do want to segue into something else. Mark Spence, I can't grasp the way you live your life. You pack your bag like shortly before you walk out the door. I'm the same way. Wait, you're serious? Mm -hmm. Me too. It stresses Kelly out. Of course. This is normal. This is human. You yeah. guys are crazy. No, we are the ones that are sane. If I can get packed two days before, it's the greatest <laughs> joy insane. in my life. I went to the Dominican Republic recently and I go, all right, I can be leaving here in about an hour. Let me go ahead and see what I'm going to put in my suitcase. Unbelievable. Yeah, I do something similar. When you traveled easy, as I did, went to New Zealand like 200 years ago, easy likes to take his whole pulpit series, Spurgeon's pulpit. So he takes huge books and suitcases we had to carry everywhere for about a week and a half. Remember that? I couldn't oh believe it. Well, you go crazy, Rafe, if you have to, or if anyone going with you checks a bag they in. They can't check a bag and that changes everything. It does. Uh, I agree with you. Yeah, if you, can, if you can manage to take everything in a carry-on, you know, you just need one underwear for are months. you an overpacker <laughs> one underwear yeah i am your stereotypical just in case because do you know how i know this we went snowboarding for like three days and you packed for like a church camp he packed boxes and boxes of snacks you had like layers and i don't you just packed look, the whole house look look gilligan's island <laughs> traumatized me as a kid <laughs> who knows where i'm gonna get stranded forever is that funny though on gilligan's island they always happen to have uh, whatever they needed <laughs> they have all these outfits and you know yeah. these ridiculous. i couldn't think anything more exciting than being stranded on an island like robinson crusoe i just love innovation initiative really that, yeah Ray? i really really just as long as i got my laptop what if the island was a white room with no doors? Don't even no. talk like this. <laughs> and you're in a straight jacket. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, I don't know what it is. I, I've just got to be ready. 
You, you still don't. You don't take sheets, do you? No, I don't do sheets anymore. Easy. Have you ever wondered about the actual bed that they give you? How people have slept in it? Shouldn't you take your own bed? I take my own carpet. To <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. I there was a friend though that I really, really. You had uh, a friend? Yeah, one. <laughs> what about knives and forks? You put them in your mouth when people. No, are put, that's what I was about to say. A friend that I that I, I gained greater respect for. He takes his own silverware silverware into restaurants. That makes sense to me more than anything. When you put a spoon in your mouth, ten thousand other people have had that spoon in their mouth. And also, you got to remember, easy. They're all breathing the same air, the same air that you're breathing. Are you a germaphobe? Uh, I don't like germs. I'm not psycho, though, like that. Well. You know? (laughs) Yeah, I've had some problems in the past, but I'm reforming. All right, friends. uh, We have this wonderful comment from (laughs) Bicker5954. We just get these names. I don't make them up. last name. (laughs) Bicker. Refreshing is the subject. Here's what's crazy is there's... Uh, 543 other bickers. Is it? Well, because 595. (laughs) (laughs) Refreshing, double exclamation mark. I came across one of Ray's witnessing videos. Thank you for these, by the way. Researched Living Waters and wondered why I had not heard of this before. When I found the podcast, I was thrilled. Thank you for the depth of topic and interviewing laughter, intertwining laughter and joy. Thank you for the reminder that Christian life is full of joy and goodness. On the episode of Sinless Perfection, yes, one can sneeze without eyeballs shooting out. I've held my eyelids open when a sneeze comes right after I've put on my mascara. Also of much greater importance... Is a guy or a girl? It's a girl, it seems like. Also, <laughs> I hope it's a girl. Also of much greater importance within the same podcast was the insight into the meaning of Genesis 15 and the initiation of the Abrahamic covenant. Keep up the good work. God bless and... Thank you. Thank you. Very encouraging. Thank you there, Bicker. And uh, We should send them one of our new mugs. It's a her. Oh, we are working on mugs, right? That's right. (laughs) Mascara's a clue it wasn't a guy. Or from California. We don't know. Times have changed, right? Times have changed. (laughs) They all wear mascara. (laughs) Why do they get away with it? Or an actor wearing makeup. Yeah. We're getting merch. We're going to get mugs. Yeah, the podcast mugs. We're going to put our mugs on a mug. Mugs on mugs. Drinking. As long as it doesn't look like, what is it, a giveaway from, <laughs> a, from Hobby Lobby? Hobby Lobby giveaway, sure. <laughs> All right, friends. Uh, hey, before we get started, make sure to check out the Tough Questions Apologetics course. This is a five-session uh, DVD video course where we teach you how to answer all the tough questions. Uh, you're going to answer questions like, who made God? Why is there suffering and evil? How can a loving God send someone to hell? Isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? Why are Christians anti-science and stuff like that? So make sure to check it out, along with the Evidence Bible at livingwaters.com. Charles Spurgeon. Who? (laughs) C.H. Spurgeon. We go by Charlie at this point. Yeah, C.H. Spurgeon. You guys remember that uh, C&H, Pure Cane Sugar song? Nope. Next question. C.N.H. Pure Cane Sugar. From Hawaii. It was like that's the one. A commercial in the seventies in Lebanon or something. Before your time, Oscar. You're twelve, so you wouldn't remember that. Yeah, C. H. Spurgeon. You're still going with it. I came up with a C. H. Spurgeon song, but I won't sing it. Anyway, friends, where would you rank Spurgeon, Ray? Ten out of a thousand. No, wow. ten out of ten. Only ten, ten. Seriously, on, on your I list. I can't. I can't fault him with his quotes. It's just absolutely amazing. You know. I'm glad Scripture says, don't say I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, because I'd have Spurgeon in that list and Salva Spurgeon, because he was so 
wonderfully eloquent, had such a concern for the lost. He gave a quote that I I was absolutely thrilled. It's like I was in a desert and I found this oasis of this quote. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. And the reason I love that quote is I thought this is exactly what I want to say. And I want to say it from pulpits, and now people can blame Spurgeon and not me. <laughs> and that's why I grabbed it, because I wanted to say, if you don't care about the loss, there's no love in your heart. You've got a heart of stone. How can you know you're saved? And so Spurgeon said it for me, and he said it so eloquently. So we have nearly 10, 15,000 people listening to each of these sermons, I ha- sermons, podcasts. I have to imagine that there might be a few that don't know who Spurgeon is. Yeah. Easy, who is Charles Spurgeon? Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him here in our studio. Yeah, it says preach right under it. Spurgeon, he was a, an extraordinary, I want to call him a... Preacher. I, I can't even think of the word. <laughs> Human. Preacher. Yeah, he, he's probably one of the most eloquent human beings that's ever lived. Well, he had a vocabulary of 23,000 words. Shakespeare had 23,000 words. If you and I are average, you've got about 13,000. So he's like a walking thesaurus, a walking dictionary. And his placement with words was so wonderful. He was called the Prince of Preachers. And that really sums him up. He was just absolutely marvelous. And I am, I am just, I can't believe he died at 57. Did he really? Yeah. And my whole thought, is, Lord, you don't know who this was. He couldn't die at 57. This is Charles Spurgeon. How could you let him die? And I had the same thoughts when Keith Green died. And I remember the very moment that I heard Keith Green died in 1982, where he'd been killed in a plane crash. I thought, Lord, who else have you got? This is, and I realized it was a big revelation that God doesn't need anybody. He's not impressed with me. He's not impressed with you. He condescends to use us, but uh, none of us is expedient. Is that the correct use of the word? Indispensable. Indispensable. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've got a vocabulary. Spurgeon, of thirteen he, he words. Was called. <laughs> <laughs> yep, right. Yep, yep right. right. Cereal. Yep, yep right. Chickens. <laughs> yep, right. Spurgeon, along with being called the Prince of Preachers, he was called Silver Tongue. He came out of the 1800s. He was born in 1834 in the UK. He died. Yeah, you said 57 years old back in 1892, and he was one of those guys that was obviously radically uh, gifted by God. I mean, he started looking at books for hours at the age of three. So his father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. When he was about 14 months old, he went to live with his grandparents. He learned the alphabet while he's still in the womb. (laughs) Came out preaching. But he lived with his grandparents. His father was a, his grandfather was a pastor. And so he had this extensive library full of uh, Puritan books. And, you know, a lot of them were illustrated. So he would take them, he would just sit, for hours, he would look through the pictures. By the time he was five or six, he was reading like just a way advanced level. And he would, you know, he would do public readings and stuff and services and stuff like that. But he was one of those young men that ended up being used at a really young age. He got saved at about 16. You remember his testimony, Ray? Yes. Harry walked into a church a snowy cold day and and uh, look to him who was pierced or something, look unto him. And little did the preacher know who he was preaching to, and it encourages me when I'm witnessing to people, this could be a future Spurgeon, you know, that uh, we just don't know who we're witnessing to, who we're preaching to, especially with open-air preaching, you don't know who you're talking to. And wasn't that a guest lecture as well? I thought, I thought that it wasn't the main Yeah, it was pastor. a snowy day, and he like was trying to get out of the snow, basically, so he goes into the, the service. Like? It was a snowy day. <laughs> was it cold? Oh, freezing. And so he goes into this Methodist church 
the pastor wasn't there and there was like a deacon or someone that got up to preach and Spurgeon actually called the guy stupid when he was recounting the testament, like a simpleton, you know, and the guy was preaching out of Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he just kind of basically kept repeating. He went for about only 10 minutes. He ran out of things to say, but then he looks at Spurgeon and he says to him, you're looking, something to the effect of you're looking pretty miserable, <laughs> you know? And he, Spurgeon was, he was, he was, you know, going through deep depression and he stuff. He was cold. Was yeah, snowy. freezing no. cold. It was Have you heard outside. Spurgeon's testimony where he talks about the plowers plowing those Ten Commandments across my back? Oh, yeah. Oh. But listen to this. He says, he said, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And uh, he said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with, with, with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. Oh, yeah, that's just so powerful. And what's the, am I remembering this correctly? The first time he ever preached, it wasn't much long after that moment where he was at church and the pastor didn't show up. We love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week. Goodies from Living Waters, $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and a podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. No, maybe you're... Am I mistaking him for someone else? No, the first time he ever preached... Maybe you're lying. I could be lying. (laughs) The first time he ever preached, he was basically tricked into preaching. A guy told him to to go and preach, and he said, uh, you need to go accompany this young man who's going to go preach. So he goes with this young man, and as they're going, he says to to this guy, he goes, you know, I'm going to be praying for you to preach. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? I've never done that in my life. I was told you're the one who's going to preach. So he did. He got up, and and he preached, and some lady interrupted him and goes, how old are you, young man? He says, don't interrupt the preaching. And he kept going. And finally, she asked him again at the end, and he goes, under 60. (laughs) Someone goes, under 16, I would venture to guess. And uh, yeah, he was about 16 years old. Is that sermon recorded? Because I saw a a biography on uh, YouTube and he was preaching to this group of people and it was just so beautiful. A very young man. And they're they're almost moved to tears where their eyes widened by what he was saying. That is the one thing I wish... They had in the time, although we've joked about that, right? My name's Cal Spurgeon. I'm really pleased to meet you. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, what he said was eloquent, but his voice, like, hey, repent unto the Lord. That'd be crazy. You know, easy it is without 
idolatry, it's great to have heroes in the faith. God lists heroes in Hebrews 11 that are looked up to by the Lord. And so we can look back at these men and just be encouraged by them. So Mark, in terms of the degree of impact and encouragement that you've experienced in life, where, where would you rank Spurgeon there for you? Boy, top of the list, right? I mean, I, I think a lot of people say that they like it was Phil Johnson who said a lot of people like to quote Spurgeon, but they don't like to do a deep dive into his messages and see where what he's all about. It seems like he is the most quoted person from a vault, right? It, it seems like everything just kind of dripped from his mouth like honey, unintentional. He had a command of the audience as well. The ability to connect with people and to meet them at their level, I think by and large, demonstrable by his prayer life. You read what he had experienced in prayer, you know, saying that uh, God's scholars must live on their knees, you know, study yourself to death and then pray yourself alive. You know, a man doesn't stand as tall as, as when he is on his knees. The Spurgeon quotes. That there's a man who really took to heart of what it meant to commune with God and, and he lived it. And I think that the outflow was the overflow of his life, that he wasn't intentionally, I believe, trying to come up with quotes, you know, for everybody else to be able to use. But in reality, it was just an overflow of his life that he did not know to what degree that he was going to be used. Well, he wouldn't have known about the internet. <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Right. I mean, um, I think we're just indebted to the man and what it means to abide in the vine and and we have the privilege and the blessing to be able to just kind of receive that here today and to carry that on to the next uh, generation. So his messages each week were transcribed and put in newspapers throughout the world. That's why we have them all today. They're, they're manuscripted. He, his ascent, I mean, how that all worked, you know, he, like I said, that, that was the first time that he had ever preached. That was back in 1850. And it was in a village called Taversham. And yeah, he was going thinking he was going to go support this guy. And he was the one who was supposed to speak. And it had a real impact. And he was basically, at the time, he was living in, in Cambridge. He went to school there and was kind of a student teacher. And shortly after that, as, as people began to recognize his gifting, he started doing what, what was called like, there was a layman preaching group. And they would preach to like 13 different uh, villages. And he would go around doing that. And then he was asked one time to speak at a church that was in an area called Water Beach. It was a Baptist church. And when they heard him speak, they were just in absolute shock. Like the people couldn't believe it. And so shortly after that, they asked him to, to become their pastor. And he did. He wasn't educated. He didn't go to Bible college. So after that, he started to get a little well-known. He was asked to speak at a church in um, New Park. It was called the New Park Baptist Church. And he was intimidated because the three pastors that had filled that pulpit were like giants. I mean, these guys were like authors, they were theologians. And so he was extremely nervous, but he got up in that pulpit and he preached that first sermon there and just shook the place. And then he told them, I'm not educated. They said, good, <laughs> because all the guys we've had who were educated weren't giving us, they just felt his spirit and the the power of, of what God was doing. And that's what later became the Metropolitan Tabernacle and uh, which you've been to the second building. We snuck into it. Well, it was closed and I was with my son in uh, London 
And I said, hey, there's a little door open right there. I know that it's the bookstore out the back side of the Metropolitan. And I said, hey, go ask them if they can let us see the Metropolitan. Because I've been there three times over the last 30 years or so, never with the opportunity to go inside. So he went in there and they turned him down. And I walked up there and I just went right past the first woman. And there was another gentleman there. And I said, hey, would you mind if we just quickly saw the Metropolitan? I've been here three times over the last 30 years, never had the opportunity to go see it. And it was locked up. He took us in there and I took a picture of my son, uh, Ethan, right there. But it's a little surreal, but it's still there. I think they have a Wednesday night uh, Bible study. So if you're going to make it out there, attend on a Wednesday night study. Yeah, I've been on the outside of it, never got to go in, but really wanted to. Yeah. So th that was the, the first building, like I said, was a new park one. It was an existing church. I mean, see the 12 people. The first time he preached, there were about, a, you know, they say up to a couple hundred there. And then they had him back again and then again, and they asked him to be their pastor. And that place just exploded. So when they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that was made to seat 3,600 with the capacity to seat, you know, for another 2,000 seats and standing room type thing. So they say there were about 6,000 people on a given Sunday Back in that time, especially that we're in there to hear him. That and there was, was huge. no amplification in those days. They yeah. had to use acoustics. What's right. that? <laughs> Oscar, you were going to say? Yeah, well, one slight trivia because I love this name. Do you know the name of the magazine that they printed all of his, all of his sermons? Sword and Trowel? The Sword and the Trowel. And it comes from Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the walls of, of uh, Jerusalem. And the sword was there to defend them and the trial was there for them to work, which I love that name that they used. But speaking of the, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, people know Spurgeon primarily for his preaching and then maybe secondarily for his commentaries or his morning and evening devotionals. And rightfully so, because all three of those are incredible things. But a lot of people don't realize that he was a phenomenal florist. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the bouquets that the man would put together. He was an incredible pastor and an exemplary pastor. One of my favorite stories that I've read of them is the Metropolitan Tabernacle was there in about the 1850s as things were going off. And just before that, the Industrial Revolution was going off in London. They were right there in the heart of the city. And the consequences of the industrial revolution is that everyone left the suburbs and moved into the city, into a city that couldn't make, contain that many people. And so homelessness and violence and corruption and political turmoil were skyrocketing. And at that time, there's all of these stories of these other churches that were saying, we're out of here. We're leaving London. We can't do this anymore. And they moved into the burbs, if you will. But Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon and his elders said, not us. We're going to stay here because he saw it as an opportunity for the gospel. And so him and his church started over 60 organizations. I'll just give you a couple of examples. They created homes for people who lost their jobs. They needed to get back on their feet. They built homes for the elderly who they would care for them and give them a place to die in dignity and peace. They created orphanages where they educated, cared for, and fed thousands of orphans. They built homes for single mothers and helped them find jobs. They started schools for pastors who couldn't afford theological seminary schools that were there at the time. They started business programs for people who were trying to, to make money to be able to take care of, of their people. They started over 60 programs to help the community. At one point, let me just read this excerpt. Metropolitan's Tabernacle 
influence spread so quickly throughout the poor and all the way up the class ladder to the aristocracy, it got to the point that if the Metropolitan Tabernacle had shut down at any point during that decade of grappling with the problem of the Industrial Revolution, the city of London would have been crippled. They would have grieved the loss of the tabernacle. Can you imagine serving the needs of your city, being so attuned to the common good for the sake of the gospel that your city would grieve if you picked up and left? Isn't that good? And to me, it's a testament to like, there's these temptations of going, I'm leaving my community, I'm leaving my city, I'm leaving my state because it's now this blue state that I couldn't stand and et cetera, et cetera. And I get that everyone has their different reasons. We've talked about this before because the reality is that God is also calling people to places exactly like that. And I think it was Spurgeon that said, God has not forsaken a place and still until his people have forsaken it. And I think that's the view he took at, on London at that time. Oh, John Plowman's talk. Have you read that book by Spurgeon? I read it to my kids when they were in devotions years ago. So practical, so funny, so witty. Spurgeon had a way of saying something he wanted to say where he wouldn't be, people wouldn't be offended with him. He would say things like, some vagabond fellows say this, and then he says what he wanted to say, so they get blamed rather than him if it was a bit on the edge. But John Plowman's talk is uh, really, really good. So was The Soul Winner. That was a book that influenced me um, right about 1982, and then Lectures by Students by Spurgeon. Yeah, two of the books that had influenced him most at a really, really young age, like I said, he was, he was a prolific reader, was a voracious reader, rather, Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you forgot the other one. What? Alien's Alarm by Joseph Alien. Oh, that's right. He said he, his mother read that to him as she sat on his knee just as a little kid, and that's so influenced his life. Yeah, and you know, you trace it back really to his conversion. And I love that. I mean, oftentimes we think it's those that were entrenched in deep, gross sin who will typically have this radical passion for the Lord. But no, he grew up as a pastor's kid and had a grandfather who was a pastor, grew up around the truth, but he came to recognize his sin and get radically converted. Listen to how he described what happened right after that. He said, between half past 10 o'clock when I entered the chapel and half past 12 o'clock when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair. And I was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Oh, there was joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. So you have trouble speaking sometimes when you say things like that. I, my voice cracks. I make a fool of myself. Oh, man. But it was a radical. Like he embraced Christ and was so transformed by him. And what I love about Spurgeon is a lot of people don't recognize this. I think we'll see people like Spurgeon will think, oh, he must have been a serious guy all the time. But he was known, this is something that I read, it said he was a mischievous, funny man. What a bumbling fountain of humor Mr. Spurgeon had, wrote his friend William Williams. I have laughed more, I verily believe, when in his company than during all the rest of my life besides. A whole chapter of Spurgeon's autobiography is entitled Pure Fun, and he regularly surprised people who expected the zealous pastor to be dour and intense. Grandiosity, religiosity, and humbug could all ex expect to be pricked on his wit. And I think that is a mark of a truly godly person. Not that they're, you know, 
some clown or buffoon, or maybe even have an extraordinary sense of humor, but there is a joy about them. And there is this kind of sense, and it was also said of Spurgeon, he never really took himself, you know, very, very seriously. And so that's what happened. You know, he launches into ministry early on. People see this extraordinary gift. He goes from the New Park Church. He goes, you know, to Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was a church they constructed, you know, from scratch because, again, they were doing so much. The need was great. They weren't just seeing this like, let's bring in a bunch of people. Let's have a hub, a base where we can minister to such a degree as you shared, Oscar, that we're impacting our entire you know, city, the capital, you know. And then from there, all these ministries were birthed. His sermons were distributed all around the world. His writings began to explode. I mean, morning and evening, I've been reading that devotional for years. And I often will send my family a whole segment. I'll just send it in a group text and say, guys, you got to read this, you know. While dead, he's still speaking and having an impact. My grandson was named after Spurgeon, his middle name, Haddon, because Matthias and Summer just loved Spurgeon so much and, and did that. However, Spurgeon was also known to have dealt with a lot of depression. And uh, a lot of times, you know, I think people don't recognize that as well. L listen to this. Spurgeon was full of life and joy, but also suffered deeply with depression as a result of personal tragedies, illness, and stress. Today, he would almost certainly be diagnosed as clinically depressed and treated with medication and therapy. His wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in, in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. I mean, think about, think about who we're talking about right now. The, the prince of preachers. How could someone like that, you know, ever deal with stuff like that? It says, Spurgeon believed that Christian ministers should expect a special degree of suffering to be given to them as a way of forming them for Christ-like compassionate ministry. Christ himself was made like his weak and tempted brothers in order that he might help those who are tempted, Hebrews 2, 16 to 18. And in the same manner, it is weak and suffering people that God has chosen to minister to the weak and suffering. Ray, do you think it was a form of keeping him humble? Oh, definitely. Absolutely a thorn in the flesh. So he could say when he's um, weak, then he's strong, uh, rather than be exalted above measure. Because if I spoke with the eloquence of Spurgeon, I'd have a problem too. I'd be the sort of person that wanted to look in a mirror every time I passed it. I know someone yeah. like that. <laughs> Who would that be? <laughs> Let me just give a quote from Spurgeon. Just one word has ministered to me from this. We must school and train ourselves. <laughs> Is that the word? That's the quote. I, I thought, Spurgeon why, never did that. In why the did he preaching. say, <laughs> We must school and train ourselves to deal personally with the unconverted. We must not excuse ourselves, but force ourselves to the irksome task until it becomes easy. That word irksome is so ministered to me because I hate evangelism. I hate approaching strangers. I hate Santa people. How many lies are you told? <laughs> And it's irksome. That word irksome means annoying. But it's something we must do like the disciples. Every corner they turn in the book of Acts. We cannot but speak that which was seen and heard. And that was in peril of their lives. And so we just keep doing it. And the, the joyous thing about the irksome task is that this morning I poured my heart out to a young guy who was uh, studying to be an aerospace engineer at a local college. And it was like the first time I ever witnessed anyone. It just was just like a um, rivers of living water flowing from my innermost being. So you mean that, Ray, from the standpoint of you just sensed God's help and oh, it was all oh, coming together or the way he was responding? Just or what? the excitement of sharing the gospel with someone who's listening. It's like I've never shared it before. Like you open here, preach for two hours, you're exhausted. You think, I just got to go home. I can't say another word. And someone comes up and says, 
How can I be born again? And you just turn to them with this enthusiasm and energy because the dynamis of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. You know, it's impossible to be used by God to any great degree without going through and experiencing great difficulty. It is par for the course. It is something that you must go through. Spurgeon said, many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. There are some of your graces which would never be discovered if it were not for the trials in whom we experience. And then he said, as sure as God puts his children in the furnace of affliction, he will be with them in it. Right? So listen, we must be on that road less traveled. And on that road that's less traveled, there are thorns and thistles. There's difficulties. There's Red Seas. There are those trials that we never would have signed up for. But this is the academy that our professor must put us through in order to be used so we don't pat ourselves on the back because all glory belongs to God. Think about the way we're talking about this man. If he was just sitting here at the table with us, all of these great things, and he would say, you have no idea the things that I had to experience to go through this. And at that age of, what was it, 57 that he died? He didn't want to live to be 58 or 59. I'm sure he had that desire with the Apostle Paul that I longed to go home to be with the Lord, but to be here, it's much better for your sake. But he would not, on this side of heaven, as he is where he was at, to go, oh, just one more year. No, God's not pacing back and forth, wondering who he's now going to use to carry on the baton. He didn't drop the baton. God has always had his remnant. He's always had his people. And God still uses the foolishness of preaching to save people. Why? So that all glory and honor and majesty goes back to the King of Kings, not to us, his servants. I had an experience that just gets birthed out of Virgin dying at 57. Yesterday, I was witnessing to a Muslim girl who was very contentious. But boy, did she come through and embrace the gospel just wonderfully. She said, I've never talked like this before, never heard this sort of thing before. It was great. But in the witnessing session, she said, she said something that just for me made me fall almost backwards. She wanted to say that I was experienced and she was young and she had the whole of her life to, and that's when she was being contentious. And she says, you're very old. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say you're old. She put the word very in there. With passion. Yeah. And I says, what? Spoken and she like said, a true Arab. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it made me laugh because I was right in thinking and praying about Joshua 13 and 14, which I'm sure you're both familiar with. It says, Joshua was well stricken in years. I love the King James Version when it says well stricken. Let's mean struck by lightning. That's what it's like to get old. You give up everything and then the Lord comes and says the same thing to Joshua. He says, Joshua, you're well stricken in years. It was though he hadn't heard it enough and was aware of it himself. And he says, but there's still land to be possessed. And then you read chapter 14 where Joshua says, I'm now 85 and I'm still running around like a 15-year-old. That was really what he was saying. He says, and then he says this, and I just, I was just quoting yesterday, give me that mountain. <laughs> I want to possess that land at 85 years old. And that's my testimony. I'm growing old disgracefully. I'm holding on to my energy. <laughs> I'm, I'm fighting every minute of it because I'm saying, God, give me that mountain. There's a mountain of unsafe people out there. And we can actually speak to the mountain, not talk and speak it, name it and claim it, but we've been given this great gift of faith that we can use to move the hand of God and see great things done. So God, give me that mountain. And you know what, Ray, that's a good point you made because I think that could be said of Spurgeon because in his latter years, he was enmeshed in what was known as the downgrade controversy. And that really kind of, a lot of people think that could have been what did him in. I mean, he died of gout 
as we said, at 57, but he was radically overwhelmed and depressed by that. Basically, he stood up against his whole denomination, the Baptist Union denomination, and basically he was standing for that. This was what was going on. It was the denial of the infallibility of Scripture, the denial of necessity and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement, the denial of the existence and eternality of hell, and the affirmation of universalism. That's what was going on in his... Kind of a big deal. Yeah, in his (laughs) congregation. But he was getting a lot of heat for that because a lot of people were folding, but he stood. And like you said, even though he wasn't super old, but he was older, fatigued by ministry and by all that he'd done, it, it didn't let him fold. And, and he stood strong. And uh, Well, it's surprising that in those days, I mean, nowadays we've got a form of godliness and the false gospel has infiltrated the church and filled the pews with tears among the wheat. And we expect that sort of talk, you know, the denial of the basics of Christianity, but not back then during Spurgeon's era, you wouldn't think it. No, liberalism was starting to to flourish then. And yeah, he took that stand. But again, I think it goes back to his love for Jesus. Listen to this. This is from morning and evening. It was uh, from one of the evening entries. It says, I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have, never brother such a kinsman as he has been to me, never spouse such a husband as Christ has been to my soul, never sinner a better savior, never mourner a better comforter than Christ hath been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be my death of death. In poverty Christ is my riches, in sickness he makes my bed, in darkness he is my star, and in brightness he is my sun. He is the manna of the camp in the wilderness, and he shall be the new corn of the host when they come to Canaan. Jesus is to me all grace and no wrath, all truth and no falsehood, and of truth and grace he is full, infinitely full, my soul this night, blessed with all thy might, the only begotten. Oh. Ray, you were swinging your arm around. When well, I, was... I didn't want to seem like over spiritual, but yeah, I was lifting my arm and, and praise to God because uh, if any man loves not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. That's the basis of our Christian faith, to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And after what Jesus did on the cross, how can we not be broken with such love? Yeah, you know, one of the things that morning and evenings, well, first I was going to say that was amazing. I don't know if it was the microphone or the way that you read it. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I love about morning and evenings, Spurgeon, a few other authors and pastors have done, and the Lord has used them to do an excellent job in helping me watch out for self-righteousness. And one of the standout quotes from Spurgeon is, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. And, and he seemed that way as he went further into, he reflected on his own sin just as often as he reflected on the sin that he saw out in the world. Yeah, and you would get that in his writings and his sermons. And I remember one time reading a quote where he talked about how so disheartened he would be oftentimes on a Sunday evening as he would sit at home depressed that he couldn't preach adequately. (laughs) (laughs) Where does that leave us? Oh, man. (laughs) What would he think about our preaching? Yes. That was what probably was making him depressed. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't talking about his own This guy's coming in the future generations. You know, one thing that just thrills me about Spurgeon, I might have said it before, is the fact that he held on to his passion for the lost. He could have been just the deepest theologian ever and sat at his feet and listened to him open expound scripture, but he said things like this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled to the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Ray, you've never written a book on Spurgeon, have you? (laughs) Yes, I have. 
He did. Oh, I did. <laughs> uh, in fact, you know, this this story bears telling. We got someone who reached out to us. I know I've probably just shared it on a past podcast, but someone reached out to us and said they got radically saved through listening to Hell's Best Kept Secret. And they said they were Spurgeon's great, 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 great grandson. And you were kind of incredulous, Ray, then he actually came and showed you... The family tree. The family tree. He brought the branch and the yeah. brutes. The amazing thing is, is that Ray got a hold of the Hell's Best Kept Secret message that really kind of launched your ministry in a sense by reading one of Spurgeon's, was it a sermon or, a, quote, or a book? Just one quote. A quote. Can you say that quote? Yeah. What will you do when the law comes in terror, when the trump of the archangel shall tear you from your grave, when the eyes of God shall burn their way unto your guilty soul, when the book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished? Can you stand against an angry law in that day? Oh, <laughs> wow. I remember I was on a plane and I had that quote sitting in my Bible and it's guy was unsaved and I'd be witnessing to him and I gave him I says read this quote from the Prince of Preachers of last century and as he read it I watched his face go red it wasn't with anger it was just total like whoa yeah so that ended up leading to you getting a hold of the biblical principle of the use of the law and evangelism and preach hell's best kept secret and then Spurgeon's great 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 grandson heard that sermon and radically got saved. And so you see how it came full circle. Obviously Spurgeon prayed for his progeny and then God uses him to impact you and then you to impact his. And then he gave me a forward for the book on and Spurgeon. And then he wrote a Spurgeon, wrote. yeah, the book for uh, Spurgeon Gold that you wrote. How awesome is that? I couldn't remember the name of it I'm glad you mentioned Spurgeon Gold, yeah, right. So let me finish on, on kind of a fun note. This is a story about- So you haven't been having fun? No, not at all. Finally, <laughs> 42 minutes in, let's have some fun. Yeah, this is Spurgeon wife writing about how one day he could not put a sermon together. What was her name? Susanna. And the sermon was on Psalm 110, verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And he just could not get a sermon together. He couldn't get the heart of the text and he was stressed out and it was late. And his wife talked him into going to sleep. She said, you'll wake up early, you know, refresh. She said, okay, wake me up real early. Hopefully I'll be refreshed and I can put the sermon together. So anyway, he goes to bed. She says, by and by, a wonderful thing happened. During the first dawning hours of the Sabbath, I heard him talking in his sleep and roused myself to listen attentively. Soon I realized he was going over the subject of the verse, which had been so obscure to him and was giving a clear and distinct <laughs> exposition of its meaning with much force and freshness. I set myself with almost trembling joy to understand and follow all that he was saying. For I knew that if I could but seize and remember the salient points of the discourse, he would have no difficulty in developing and enlarging upon them. Never preacher had a more eager and anxious hearer. What if I should let the precious words slip? I had no means at hand of taking notes. So like Nehemiah, I prayed to the God of heaven and asked that I might receive and retain the thoughts which he had given to his servant in his sleep, of which were so singularly entrusted to my keeping. As I lay repeating over and over again the chief points I wished to remember, my happiness was very great in anticipation of his surprise and delight on awaking. But I had kept vigil so long, cherishing my joy, that I must have been overcome with slumber just when the usual time for rising came. For he awoke with a frightened start, and seeing the telltale clock said, Oh, wifey, you said you would wake me very early and now see the time. Oh, why did you let me sleep? What shall I do? What shall I do? Listen, beloved, I answered. And I told him all I had heard. Why, that's just what I wanted, he exclaimed. That is the true explanation of the whole verse. And you say I preached it in my sleep? 
It is wonderful. He repeated again and again, and we both praise the Lord for so remarkable a manifestation of his power and love. That's so good. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I'll just be snoozing off next time I want to do a sermon. <laughs> Say, Sue, you listen. Can you imagine that? The new approach to sermon prep, <laughs> just sleep and talk in your sleep. But what a life. You know, and he called her wifey. That is so nice. And from all accounts, they had a wonderful marriage. He he just really cherished and loved his wife and was a great father and husband. And what an inspiration. And, And I think a big takeaway for us should be the power of the written word, because we wouldn't be talking about Spurgeon right now had it not been for the written word and the printing press as well. And just an encouragement to preserve what we write. Look, all of you listening obviously are not called to be authors. Some of you may be, but Think about what you leave behind, whether it's your journals or whether it's letters to loved ones or whether it's thoughts on different things. There's power in passing on truth. And uh, there's power in the example of a man whose life was surrendered to the Lord wholly and completely. And look, be encouraged by this. Spurgeon gave a sermon once on candles. And he talked about different size candles and, and how, you know, some are 10 hour candles, five, four, three, two, one. He said, the point is not trying to be a different size candle. Sometimes the big candles want to be little ones. They think, oh, I'm in the limelight. There's all this pressure. I wish I was not known. And, and sometimes a small candle wishes it could be a big one. You know, I want to be wrecked, whatever. No, the point is whatever size candle God has made you burn until the last drop of wax is expended. That means don't ever let your flame extinguish. Be on fire for the Lord. Be used by him until the moment he has set you to be used by him and live for his glory. Well, there you have it, friends, the life of the extraordinary Spurgeon. Thank you for joining us. And uh, remember to check out Tough Questions and the Evidence Bible at livingwaters.com. Give us a rating, comments, and all that good stuff. We'll see you next time here on the Living Waters. Hey, podcast. And by the way, Evidence Bible is packed full of Spurgeon quotes. Oh, that's right. So make sure to check out the Evidence Bible. Thanks for joining us for the Living Waters podcast. And by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Winners, winners, winners. That's you, friends. Those of you who I'm about to announce are the winners of this week's podcast giveaway on the Living Waters podcast. We've got Carlos from Lamont, California, Daniel from Jamestown, North Carolina, Ed Washburn from Tennessee, David Norwood from North Carolina, Doug Campobello from South Carolina, Ali from Falls Church, Virginia, Adrian from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Joshua from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, Eva from Bow Island, Canada, and Penelope from Bardwell Park, Australia. Shout out to the Aussies and the Canadians out there. Friends, you can get this too. Those of you who are listening, just share the word and sign up for the Living Waters podcast.